0: Father, as we come to Your Word today, we ask that You would give us a greater vision of You, of Yourself, of Your glory, of Your goodness, of Your purposes, and a greater assurance in Your steadfast love and Your promises unto Your people. Oh God, use this time to grow us In the likeness of Christ, that we may reflect Him in our lives more and more. For His glory we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. The plan originally was to get through this whole chapter today. Ain't going to happen. There is so much here. The first couple readings, I. I thought there was one main theme through the whole thing, and as I was thinking through it and and praying through it and preparing through it, I thought there's no way I'm going to get past verse 16. So we're covering verses 1-16 to today. One of the great doctrines of the Christian faith is the omnipresence of God. And as I was studying this chapter, I see that as one of, at least one of the primary themes of this chapter. And of course, the word omnipresent means that God is everywhere, omnipresent. He exists in all places. A.W. Tozer Uh, helps us to think rightly about God's omnipresence. He wrote this, he said, God dwells in His creation and is everywhere, indivisibly present in all His works. He is transcendent above all His works, even while He is imminent within them. The great uh, Puritan author Thomas Watson wrote this, God's center is everywhere, His circumference is everywhere nowhere. That's kind of an interesting way of thinking of it. We can't really picture that, can we? His center is everywhere. His circumference is nowhere. That's something that our minds just simply cannot fully or perfectly understand. We can't fathom exactly what that means, what that look, looks like. But the mind-boggling reality is that God is everywhere. Not only is He everywhere, but He is fully everywhere. In other words, you don't have part of him over here, part of him over there, part of him, you know, that way, part of him that way. No, he is fully everywhere, everywhere he exists. So no space can contain him, even partially, and yet he is fully in all places. That is the doctrine, in a nutshell, the doctrine of God's omnipresence. Now on the one hand, this reality confronts us and it gives us a sense of conflict, As Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. See, God's omnipresence means that you can't hide from Him. It means He knows about your sin. He sees your sin. In fact, He's there while you are sinning. You cannot escape His presence to sin secretly there is secret sin with man but there is no possibility of keeping your sin secret with god god's omnipresence confronts us and gives us conflict in that sense but in another sense it also comforts it comforts listen to what david wrote in psalm 139 verses 7 to 10 he said this where shall i go from your spirit Of course, these are rhetorical questions. The answer is nowhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So it can either confront somebody or it can comfort somebody. David didn't feel confronted by the reality of God's omnipresence. Not when he wrote this. Rather than feeling confronted or conflicted by God's omnipresence, he was comforted by it. David knew that God in his fullness was with David wherever David went. And while God is fully present and in, in all places, we have to understand that God is also free to act differently in different places and toward different people. One of the questions that the doctrine of God's omnipresence inevitably brings up, it comes up almost every time you talk about it, is does that mean that God is present in hell? That's an interesting question. The answer is yes. The answer is yes, God is in hell. But hell is a place where God withholds mercy, withholds grace, and He only exercises His burning wrath against sin. It's a place of perfect justice. It's a place of torment. And God is there fully, freely acting differently than He does, for example, in heaven. Or differently toward those who are in hell than those who belong to Him in this world or in heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite verses, because it's succinct, and yet it's loaded with theological truth and comfort. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't say that there will be no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No, That's covered. But Paul is specifically talking about the present. He's saying now, in this life, in this world, And, and of course, in the age to come, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we don't deserve His condemnation right now. Because we do. Every single one of us has violated His precepts. Every single one of us has sinned in thought, word, and deed. No, it simply means that God has chosen to freely bestow His grace and mercy upon us. Having cast our sin upon Christ, and having clothed us in exchange in the very righteousness of Christ, so that when He looks at us, He is as pleased with us as He was with Christ. What a beautiful truth. Beautiful, assuring, comforting truth. God has set forth His promise in His Word that He is with His children that he is for his children and indeed that he dwells within his children. And as we study Genesis chapter 26 verses 1 to 16 today, we're going to see that that's one of the primary points of this passage. God is with his children, God is for his children, and God dwells within his children. That's been said that the most exceptional thing about Isaac is that there was nothing really exceptional about Isaac. He's a pretty boring person, to be honest. But that's not a bad thing, necessarily. You know, it's not like we're loaded with stories about how he sinned or anything like that. But he's just not an exceptional person. He wasn't a very adventurous person, apparently. He was a very passive person, apparently. He was the son of an exceptional man, Abraham. And he's the father of an exceptional man, Jacob. But Isaac himself is really kind of obscure, at least in comparison to those two guys, in comparison to his father and his son. He's a very obscure figure. We don't learn a lot about him in the pages of Scripture, at least not in comparison to some of the other patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith. What we do know about him comes from this chapter. Now, while we don't know much about him, this chapter will give us a picture of the way that the reality of God's omnipresence shaped the way that he lived. It shaped his decision-making process, and that helps us to learn in light of God's omnipresence as well. So we start with verses 1 to 5. Chapter 26, we're looking at verses 1 to 5. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The first thing that jumps out at me as I read that is this is all God's doing. I will do this. I will do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's all God's going to do, all these things. Amazing. The previous passages in chapter 25, showed us the doctrine of election, how it's, it's illustrated uh, in uh, the story of Jacob and Esau. And we saw how Esau, uh, Isaac's favorite son, we should note, uh, pursued carnal living. And he despised the offer of God's blessing. He despised his birthright. But now we're going to fix our focus on Isaac as the main character of this chapter. And we have to remember that Isaac was a righteous man. He was a righteous man, but like anyone else who descended from Adam, Isaac was flawed. He was far from perfect. He was by no means perfect. So, no, like any and every other son of Adam, the fact that he was declared righteous wasn't an indication of any goodness or any potential goodness even within himself. No, it was the goodness, it was the righteousness of God imputed to him by the grace of God alone, through faith alone. See, on his own, as we're going to see today especially, Isaac was was flawed. He was very imperfect, quite unrighteous. And we're supposed to see that. We're supposed to see that he's a flawed character because let's be honest, if he wasn't a flawed character, if the characters of the Bible weren't all flawed except for one, we couldn't identify with them. We couldn't say we, well, we have something in common with them. No, we can relate to these people. We can relate to Isaac because we have flaws too. And not only are we supposed to see that Isaac was a deeply flawed and unrighteous person on, on his own, but we're also supposed to see that the sins of Abraham, the sins of Isaac's father were carried on in Isaac's life. If you remember, Abraham had this, this tendency... That Whenever things seemed like they were getting shaky, whenever things didn't feel perfectly safe and sound, Abraham would take matters into his own hands rather than trusting in the Lord to sustain him and to provide for him. And one of the first times that we saw Abraham do that was all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when there was a famine in the land and Abraham decided that instead of, seeking the counsel of the Lord, and instead of waiting on the Lord to provide, he headed down to Egypt, where the waters of the Nile would keep the crops growing and sustain all the life and all the agriculture of the region. Now some critical scholars, when they come to this chapter, when they come to chapter 26, some scholars will say, well, it's obvious, it's apparent that Whoever wrote this uh, was very confused because this is actually something that belongs in the story of Abraham. Uh, This chapter, you know, this passage was somehow accidentally duplicated from Abraham's life. But Moses, who's the author, Moses is actually very forthright, and he eliminates the possibility of that being the case right off the bat, telling us in verse one. That this famine isn't to be confused with the famine that they had back in the days of Abraham. No, this is a totally different famine. And the author makes sure that we understand that. There's some very bad, very flawed theology out there that would have us believe that as God's people, we should be living in constant victory and that if we undergo any kind of hardship, if we undergo any kind of affliction, what that really is, is a reflection of a lack of faith, or it's a reflection of a weak faith. And this is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. No, in, indeed God has decreed that He is causing all things to work together for His glory and for the good Of his people, but the good toward which everything is working for us is not toward wealth, is not toward comfort, is not toward affluence, is not toward influence, is not toward financial prosperity. It is that we would grow in the likeness of Christ. And there's no task in all of the universe that is more impossible for man to accomplish on his own it would be easier for you to prove that two plus two equals one or that a triangle has not three sides but 13 sides or 113 sides or a thousand and 13 sides it'd be easier to prove these things than it would be for man to grow in even the smallest bit in the likeness of Christ on his own But what is impossible for man is possible for God, who uses and who orders and who has decreed all things, including affliction, including hardship, including adversity, to grow us in the likeness of Christ. Now let's be very clear about it then. Adversity or hardship or trials in the Christian life is normative. Suffering. Pain. It's all normal in the Christian life. It is to be expected. It's ordinary. And it's exactly what you and I would choose for ourselves if we knew everything that God knows. How's that for a trip? That's weird, isn't it? We would choose adversity. You know, somebody somebody hurting you. We would choose it. Somebody betraying you. We would choose it. Somebody running into our car. We would choose it. Getting a fatal diagnosis from a doctor. We'd choose it. If we knew all the things that God knows. And if our desires were set on His desires. But we don't know all the things that God knows. That's why it's so hard that's why trials and tribulations and hardships are so painful and so difficult and so taxing emotionally. Because we often wish that we could avoid these things. And That's just human nature. You, you, you don't want hardships. Nobody wants hardships. Nobody wants to go through trials. If we ever see the way that they grow us in godly virtue, it seems like it's years, years after the fact And so when we face hardship, when we face adversity, what do we do? Our fleshly inclination is to get mad or to run or to feel frustrated. But the answer is really the opposite. It's to walk by faith. It's to live by faith. It's to to draw near to God in those times. That's what God uses trials for. Because adversity has a way of forcing us to draw near to God that comfort doesn't. They don't call it the refiner's fire for nothing. Our passage starts off with Isaac facing hardship, with Isaac facing adversity, serious adversity. The region has a famine, and a famine means certain death. And tragically, we see Isaac respond to this hardship, to this, to this famine, With the same lack of faith that Abraham demonstrated when he was faced with the exact same predicament. One of the things that we're going to see in our passage today, one of the points that we cannot miss in our passage today, is that the sins of the Father have become the sins of the Son. In Exodus chapter 20, verses. 5 and 6, God's giving the, the Ten Commandments and he's giving, uh, God, God's giving the reason for instructing us not to carve graven images in His likeness and to worship idols and graven images. God says this, He says, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Me. And there is a lot of debate about what exactly that means. Because it seems unfair to us that a son should have to pay for the sins of his father. And I would say that's, that's probably not what it means. I don't believe that the, the son is held guilty for the sins of the father necessarily. But is it possible that at least part of the temporal punishment, one of the, one of the awful and one of the bitter consequences of the father's sin is that the sinful patterns that are demonstrated in the life of the Father are passed on to His children because they're learning from watching Him. Indeed, that that seems to be the most likely meaning of this. That seems to be the case. Now, we've already established last week that there are no perfect earthly parents. Every parent in the history of humanity has had sinful tendencies. And who is more prone to being exposed to those sins of witnessing them firsthand and not just witnessing the sins of the parents firsthand, but witnessing them over and over and over again? Who's more likely to see that than our kids? Maybe our spouse. But our kids are definitely up there toward the front of the line, the top of the list. And as a parent, I have to say that this is something that terrifies me. This is something that, that troubles me. This is something that makes me very aware, much more aware of my sin than I would be if my kids weren't watching. Because as a Christian parent, as a Christian, the more i become aware of my sin the more i struggle with it and the more i struggle with it the more i hate it and the more i struggle with it the more i see it's just it's got me it's got it's it's got its hooks in me and so the more i hate it and the more i despise it and the more i long to be freed from it completely in glory and given this this growing hatred toward my sin the pain of of even thinking about the possibility of my kids seeing my, my, my sin and, and picking up on my sin and replicating it in their own lives is an absolutely terrifying and horrendous thought. But that's what's happened here with Isaac. We see the sins of his father replicated in him. And that's a reminder to us it's a reminder to us as parents that the most loving thing that we can do for our kids is to deal openly and honestly and forthrightly and immediately with our own sin. Don't sweep it under the rug in front of the kids. No, you, if the kids know it's there, they better see you deal with it too. As one person I, I retweeted this past week. said, he, he tweeted this. He said, Dads, be the chief of repenters in your home. Because you're likely the chief of sinners in your home. Man, that one was like putting a knife in my heart and twisting it. Because as a parent, our job is to make disciples of our kids. To teach them to love and obey the Lord. To share the Gospel with them. The Great Commission, I would say, starts at home. My my kids are the first ones I want to see growing in the likeness of Christ. And, and that's, that's, a, that's an obligation, that's a responsibility that every parent has. If you're a parent of a, of a kid, you know what you are? You're a youth pastor. You are your kid's youth pastor. You're the one who's supposed to disciple them first and foremost. So we have to be honest with ourselves about our sin and we have to repent. We must wage war on our, on our sin, and our kids have to see that. But we must also model for them the pursuit of godly virtue. They must see that struggle for humility and holiness in our lives because our kids are learning how to behave by watching us. They're learning what to believe by watching us. They see our sins sometimes more clearly than we do, oftentimes more, than, more clearly than we do. So we must deal with our sin. And we must expose them to the gospel over and over and over. Not just on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings as we're going to be having a Sunday evening service. No, daily. Daily, they need to be reminded of the gospel because the truth is, their minds are being filled with something. What do you want it to be filled with? Above and beyond the gospel. So they must, they must see the Gospel in our lives and they, they need to hear the Gospel as well. Isaac's response to facing hardship is to do exactly what his father did. He takes matters into his own hands and he starts heading down to Egypt. Now how do we know that that's what he's doing? Because it doesn't say specifically that that's what he's doing. So how do we know that he's heading down to Egypt? Well, because God, <laughs> God confronts him. He's heading down, and God specifically says to him, do not go down to Egypt. Do not go where you are going. Do not go down to Egypt. And you might say, well, why not? There's a, there's a famine in the land. It seems like this would be the wisest decision to, 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 to pursue. So why not go down to Egypt? Well, what's wrong is that Isaac, like Abraham, didn't even stop to seek the Lord's counsel on this. And if he had, he wouldn't be on his way down there. And besides, Egypt represents the world. The rebellious system that hates and opposes and defies God. If if Isaac wants to be blessed by God, he's going to need to avoid being part of that system. How many of you know that God will not bless you, at least in the way that you want to be blessed, if you're acting just like the world? No, if you're his child and you're acting like the world, he will bless you in the sense that he will bring hardship into your life and he will discipline you. But he's not going to give you a comfortable life if you're acting and behaving just like the world. He's not going to bless you in that way. And so instead of letting Isaac go down to Egypt, God instructs him to dwell in the land of promise. God tells him, sojourn in this land, and that's where he'll be blessed by God by staying in this land, in Canaan. And God repeats the blessings of the covenant. He reiterates the blessings of the covenant that He had sworn to Abraham. Maybe the most amazing thing that we see here in God's words to Isaac is that God is so delicate with him. He's so loving. He's so gentle. He's so patient with Isaac. Isaac. It would be almost easy for us to expect God to say something like, Isaac, you moron. You know, Didn't, didn't you learn anything? You heard the stories of your father. Why are you doing exactly what your dad did? You should know better. If anybody should know better, it's you, Isaac. But God doesn't even go there. God is patient. God is kind. God is steady in loving kindness unto Isaac. And so Isaac receives something better than worldly comfort. He receives something better than an earthly location that isn't experiencing this famine. He receives something better. He receives the promise of God's presence with him. The lesson there is it's better to have God's presence than it is to have all the riches and all the comfort, all the conveniences of the world. It's better to have the promise of God's presence. Now let's not miss the fact that this is a really serious test for Isaac. This is a a very serious test of his faith. Because a famine was a a very, very serious situation. It was a very serious problem. Famines in the region would typically be caused by a lack of precipitation. And without precipitation, there's there's no water. With no water... There are no crops. Without crops, there's nothing that you're going to be able to feed your livestock. And without crops, livestock, or water, you are going to die. It's just a matter of time. From a purely humanistic perspective, it would look like Isaac is just dancing with death here. He's dancing on the edge of a cliff that drops off and, yeah, there's no return from. But Isaac has been promised that God would be with him that God would be present. God would not only be with him, God would be for him. God would bless him. God would sustain him. God would cause him to prosper. And look at verse 6 with me. How does does Isaac respond to this? Verse 6, So Isaac settled in Gerar. Isaac's response to these promises from God and to God's instruction to stay in this land His response is to walk. To live by faith. And so he stays put in Gerar. And if you see this, for the test that it is, for the test of his faith that it is, you see that he has passed this test with flying colors. Because this took a lot of faith. Let's keep in mind that this is the first time that Isaac has had what we would call a theophany. That is, um, God appearing to him. Abraham had a few of them. A few theophanies, but this is the first time that we're told that God appeared to Isaac. Now, you would think that having a theophany, that having God appear to him, and God specifically giving him instructions in what to do, you would think that Isaac would have this fresh and strong iron resolve to obey God and to follow God no matter what the cost. You would think that this would lead to steadfast obedience and resolution to avoid sin. But that is simply not what happens. And so what happens is that this turns out to give us a realistic portrait of how weak, of how frail, of how flawed, of how faulty, of how foul human nature really is. Because as Isaac's story continues, we're going to see that he falls deeply into sin immediately after seeing God and immediately after having received assurance of blessing from God. So let's continue. Verses 7-11. to 11. It says, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How could you then say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And once again, we see this, this theme, the, the, the sins of the father are being repeated in the son. We recall that Abraham did the exact same thing for the exact same reason because he feared being killed. He feared somebody down there saying, wow, that's a a beautiful wife he's got. Let's get him out of the way. And so Abraham did the same thing for the same reason. He did it in Egypt in chapter 12. And then he did it again in chapter 20 with King Abimelech. And Isaac does the exact same thing for the exact same reason. He has Rebekah with him, his wife with him, and he decides to claim her as his sister rather than his wife because she's beautiful. And he's afraid that the men in Gerar will kill him so that he'll be out of the way and they can have his wife. So what we see is that, like his father Abraham, Isaac was tested after a moment of great faithfulness. This is a pattern that we saw in Abraham's life. He'd have a moment of great faithfulness, he'd be tested, boom, he'd fail. It was like all through the, the, the whole story of Abraham. That's exactly what we saw. Immediately after demonstrating such great faith in God, that he would remain in the land of Canaan instead of going down to Egypt where the water was plentiful and the crops were still growing. He exercises great faith by staying, and immediately after that, he becomes this faithless, self-serving coward. Now let's think very carefully about this. Why did Isaac stay in the land instead of going down to Egypt? Because he believed God. Because he was convinced that God was with him and that God was for him, that God was going to bless him, that God was going to prosper him. He believed it. Our actions are a reflection of what we believe. And so, in light of that truth, why did Isaac fall into sin here? Because he stopped believing. He stopped believing that God was with him. He stopped believing that God was for him. He stopped believing that God would provide for him. He stopped believing that God would sustain him. Now, if you'd been there, and if you had personally had the chance to ask Isaac, Isaac, do you believe that God is everywhere? Do you believe that God will be true to His promises unto you? His answer probably would have been something like, yeah, I believe that. At least he said he would be. Because he knew it intellectually. He knew what God had said and what God had promised intellectually. But his heart was filled with doubt. The heart. is desperately wicked. And the answer is that his heart would have given the answer, well, he, he said he'd be with me, but I'm, I'm just not so sure. Is that odd? I mean, is this, is this strange that he would suddenly lose faith like this? No, I mean, we see the same thing. Think about Peter. One moment he's saying, you are the Christ, you're the Son of God, and Jesus is saying, you're right, the Father has revealed this to you. And then Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And Peter says, oh no, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. All within kind of a breath. So this isn't terribly strange. In fact, you could probably argue that it's just pathetic. It's, but it's really no more pathetic than your failure or my failure To believe that God is with us. That God is for us. And that God is in us. See, Isaac's backslide here, his slip into sin, is really a mirror that we can see ourselves in pretty clearly if we're being honest. See, you and I affirm. We can believe all we want that God is omnipresent. We've got it up here. In fact, this morning, we sang about it. We sang about God being omnipresent. We sing, God all keeping, omnipresent in the passing days of man, first to last, not one forgotten by his strong and steering hand. Great lyrics. Some of the best lyrics about God's omnipresence ever put to him. From a lyrical perspective, that might be one of the best hymns ever written, in my, in my opinion. The Scriptures clearly attest to God's omnipresence. We, we, know, it. we know it. It's up here. We, we've got it. But think about it. If we know it, if we believe it up here, why do we sin? Why do we sin? The question is, not how much you know it up here, but how much you believe it in your heart. Does the omnipresence of God shape your life? Does it influence your life at all? It should. It should shape our our lives in the same way that having the President of the United States in our midst should prevent us from committing treason. We know that God has informed us that He is to be fully found in all places. That He is transcendent over every single nano-inch of creation. If you know His Word, you know that He is with you, not in condemnation, but to bless you if you're one of His children, if you are in Christ. He is with you. He is for you. He is in you. And yet, there's a disconnect. Because we sin. We all sin. Despite what we know intellectually about God. We know it offends Him. We know we shouldn't do it. We know that He sees it. But we do it. But we do it anyway. Shouldn't The awareness of God's presence and the awareness of His feelings towards sin motivate us to keep our feet on the paths of righteousness. It should. It should, but does it? But does it? Well, we have to confess there's always some degree of disconnect of disconnectedness between what's in our minds and what's in our hearts. We might know something intellectually, but the desires of our hearts change much more slowly than the amount of information that we have in our minds. But here's why we must fill our minds regularly with biblical truth. Be, be a Psalm 1 type of person. Because it takes time for the truths that we've got upstairs to drip, 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 into our hearts it takes time for those truths to penetrate our hearts knowing that God is is everywhere knowing that he's omnipresent knowing that he is with you that he's for you that he's indeed in you if you are in Christ should drive out fear should motivate us to avoid temptation to turn away from temptation Romans 8 31 says What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, it's a rhetorical question. It doesn't even need an answer. Because it's kind of a stupid question. If God's for us, who could be against us? Nobody. Nobody can stand against us because nobody can stand against God. And if God is with us, and if God is for us, indeed, if God is in us, nobody can stand against us. That's the point that Paul's trying to make there. And so Isaac falls into sin, and what happens? Abimelech just so happens to be passing by a window when he sees them together, and suddenly he realizes that he's been duped. Because the way Isaac and Rebekah are acting in the presence of each other isn't the way that brothers and sisters would act toward each other, if you know what I mean. And so Abimelech sees it. He witnesses it with his own eyes. And if you think that that's just chance or if that's just coincidence, think again. This is God's way of confronting, of rebuking, and disciplining Isaac because God disciplines every son he receives. And of course, this all sounds so familiar. It's what we saw in Abraham. Abraham did the the same thing, told the same lie, was also rebuked by Abimelech. Now, we don't know if this is the same Abimelech uh, that Abraham came across or not, I'm going to assume that it's not, because it was common for kings to give their firstborn sons their own name so that there would be kind of a dynasty. You know, they'd pass on the kingship. And this is how dynasties were established. And besides, Abimelech, when he confronts Isaac, he doesn't say, hey, I ran into the same thing with your dad. He doesn't seem to be familiar with Abraham at all, based on what we have here. But again, just like with Abraham, when Abraham did this, the great irony in this story is that this pagan king has more moral fortitude, more moral uprightness than Isaac does. And he's a pagan. This king is a pagan. And that should never be the case. That should never happen. When the, when the world behaves with greater integrity, and greater moral uprightness than Christians do, it's problematic that's that's very very problematic it destroys our witnesses our witness as an individual it destroys the witness of the church it shames the cause of christ when we sin not only are we doing it in the very presence of god but in our day and age especially every one of us is being watched (laughs) there are cameras absolutely everywhere in case you haven't noticed And if you look at social media, man, nothing escapes everybody's attention. And all of this underscores the importance of believing. Not just knowing, but believing that if you are in Christ, God is with you, God is for you, and God indeed dwells within you. Isaac's first sin was doubting God's promise to bless him. He doubted that God was going to provide for him and that doubt caused a second sin lying about his wife rebecca thereby demonstrating a lower moral ethic than this pagan worldly king but in his sovereignty in god's sovereignty instead of cursing isaac or rebecca this king is is ready to put somebody to death if they even touch isaac or rebecca so why doesn't this king Kill Isaac and Rebecca. They're both living out this lie. They've both deceived everybody. In His sovereignty, instead of cursing Isaac and Rebekah, God uses Abimelech to provide protection for Isaac and Rebekah, which allows them to prosper. Let's continue looking at verses 12-16. to 16. It says, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with and filled with earth all the wells that his father that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So with Abimelech's protection in place, with Abimelech's threat to anybody who touches Isaac or Rebekah, Isaac stays in Gerar. He stays in the land. And while he's there, he sows a harvest, and God blessed him. He reaps a hundredfold. And it is sick to see the way some people twist this passage to mean something that it absolutely doesn't. But God does this in the midst of a famine. He blesses him. He, 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 he reaps a hundredfold in the midst of this famine. This is the blessing that God had promised, specifically to Isaac. He's not only protected, he is prospering, and his prosperity is coming straight from God's hand. Make no mistake about it. There's no other explanation for why Isaac's crops would be growing and indeed flourishing while everybody else is suffering from a drought. And famine in the land and what do you think happens when there's a famine and, and a drought and and somebody suddenly has an enormous supply of crops at their disposal well in a, in a free market as this seems to have been at least to some degree the person who has all the food who has all the crops can make a lot of money and it's just the principle of supply and demand Since he's the one whose crops were flourishing, Isaac himself is the one who flourishes. He prospers. He became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And so this this half of the the passage, this half of of the chapter, ends with the pagan Philistines who lived around Isaac growing in envy because they wanted what Isaac had. They wanted what he had in terms of finances, in terms of material, they didn't want his God. They didn't want his God. They wanted his material, but they didn't want what he had spiritually. And that's part of the tragedy of this passage. They wanted the worldly, carnal benefits that God had bestowed upon Isaac, but they did not want Isaac's God. They wanted the gifts, but they didn't want the gift giver. And see, here's the thing, somebody can want the gifts all day long, but if you come to the giver just for the gifts, you get neither. And so these guys, they start growing in envy because they don't want His God, they just want the benefits of being good with God. Does that describe you at all? Even a little bit? Do you want the benefits of knowing God without actually knowing God for the sake of just knowing Him? For the sake of just glorifying Him because He's God? Do you want to be blessed by God but maybe not have the weight of some sense of self-imposed obligation of walking in faith and obedience? This passage is just filled with irony, isn't it? And here again, we see that Isaac's faithfulness leads him to being blessed by God. And it would be easy for us to think that that's just completely backwards. If it were up to us, we'd say that God should have withheld his blessing as a consequence of Isaac's sin. That would make a lot more sense from a human perspective. Think about it. That's the type of thinking that Job's friends had. In their minds, Job's hardship, his his affliction had to be the result of something that he had done wrong, some sin, some grievous sin that he had personally committed. In their minds, he was getting, he had to be getting what he deserved. And if you carry that type of thinking over to this this situation, you'd think that Isaac should be covered from head to toe in boils and sores and that his wife would be begging him just curse god and die but the beautiful thing is that's not the way god operates that's not the way god works his blessings aren't poured out only on those who are good his blessings aren't poured out only on those who deserve it those who have earned it and that the curse curses pour out on those who are are bad that's not the way it works you know, we hear people ask the question, you know, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? But the reality is, there are no good people. There are no good people, as far as God is concerned. And the only exception would be His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stepped down from eternity, who took on flesh, was fully God, fully man, and yet never once for one nanosecond, never once did He stray from the will of the Father. He never sinned. So the real question isn't why do bad things happen to good people? The real question is why does God bless the wicked? Why does He even allow us to breathe? Why do good things happen to bad people? Because none of us, not a single one of us, deserves to be blessed by God. So why does God bless Isaac rather than cursing him? For the same reason that the Father laid the iniquities, laid the sins of His people upon Jesus Christ and then poured out His wrath in full against Him, crushing Him. He does it because it pleased Him to do so. The truth is, only Christ deserved to have been on the receiving end Of God's blessing because only Christ lived a sinless life. But the beauty and the glory of the gospel message is that the blessing that Christ has earned is given as a free gift to everyone who will repent, who will turn from their sin and turn to Christ, placing saving faith in Him instead. Listen, if you have not placed faith in Christ alone, God is still present. In your life. He is still everywhere you go. But He is not for you. He is against you. Indeed, you are His enemy. So it's a reminder that we need to repent. If, if you haven't put your faith in Christ alone, you need to repent. You need to believe in the gift giver. And the gifts, the blessings, will be yours. If you come to Him only for the gifts and not for the sake of Him just being the gift giver, you will get neither. You know, I'm studying for uh, this Ephesians series that we're going to be doing on Sunday nights. And as I'm doing this, there are are words, I'm going through chapter 1 over and over and over again, and there are words that just jump out at me. I want you to listen to what Paul says here. Um, Starting in verse 3, he says, Blessed be to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches and grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That word lavished. God didn't give us just enough grace to get by. He lavished it upon us. Think think about it this way. The other day I went out to the awning here in front of the church and I painted around the awning because we've got rain coming and we had some bare wood on there. And so I wanted to make sure that the wood was covered with some paint before the rain came. Now, if you think about somebody lavishing paint on, on the awning out there, do you think of it just being barely enough to get by, like take a couple drops and try to spread it as thin as you possibly can? No, the picture that's probably in your mind is of paint being on there so thoroughly that it's just dripping off. That, that you're using like three gallons for a, for a six-ounce job. It's lavished on there. It's dripping. It's way more than you need. And that's the picture that Paul gives us of the blessing, of the grace, of the favor that we have through Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places he has earned for us and he has given us not only has he given it to us he has lavished it upon us the story of isaac reminds us of why it is so important to not only know but to to believe in our hearts that god is with us that god is for us and that god dwells Within us, life's hard sometimes. Affliction is guaranteed to come. Hardships are guaranteed to come. But what great comfort there is in knowing that God has promised that He will be there. And not only will He be there, but He will use it for your good. He will grow you in Christ's likeness through it. There's nothing that happens in your life that He's not sovereign over. Every single detail He's using. To make you more like Christ because He is fully there wherever you go. Do you believe? Not just know, but do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that He'll be with you no matter what you face in the coming week? No matter what you face in the coming month? No matter what you face in the coming year? Do you believe that He will be with you? Do you believe that as He's with you, He will be for you? then don't fear. Don't flinch when temptation comes, when hardship comes. Don't give in to the the temptation to compromise when it does. Follow the Lord with all of your strength, with all of your might, walking humbly in growing and joyful submission to Him. Loving Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Knowing that if you are in Christ... There is nothing that you can do to be more pleasing to God than Christ was as your substitute. He's already earned every spiritual blessing on your behalf. And He did it joyfully because He's with you. He is for you. And He is within you if you are in Christ. And if He's for us, who can separate us from His love? If He's for us, who can thwart His will? If He's with us, and for us, and in us, who can stand against us? Nobody. And nothing. Let's pray. Oh Father, what great, great assurance we gather from this passage, from Your Word, from the promise that You are with us, and that You are for us. And so we ask specifically, Lord, for for comfort when affliction and hardship comes, but we also pray for wisdom. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to believe more. We know, Lord, that there's so much more growing for us to experience in Christ's likeness. And we thank You that in Your wisdom, You have ordained all things to work toward these two ends, Your glory and the good of Your people. So bless us, fortify us, and strengthen us with that perspective when hardship comes. Teach us, Lord, not to seek comfort in our circumstances, but in You and you alone. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Teach us to cling to them, to live by them, and to grow in our assurance because of them. To the glory of Christ. Amen.